Professor Hilary Pilkington from the University of Warwick's Department of Sociology has spent eight years researching the skinhead movement in Russia. Now she has published a book on her work called Russia's Skinheads, Exploring and Rethinking Subcultural Lives. We spoke to her about the culture and lifestyle of skinheads. What is a skinhead and what does it mean to be one? Um, the term skinheads changed significantly over both time and space, I think it's fair to say. So if you ask somebody in one particular country at one, any particular time, you'd get a different answer. And even if you ask a skinhead today, I think you'd get very, very different answers in very different, different places. There was some interesting work uh, done in Germany quite recently in, uh, by Klaus Farin, who asked contemporary skinheads in Germany from lots of different kinds of perspectives what it meant to be... Uh, to be a skinhead and I remember one particular respondent saying very clearly skinhead's not about putting on a uniform it's about a feeling and I think probably your, your safest bet is to talk about some kind of sense of belonging to a community a feeling of belonging somewhere is probably the thing that all skinheads share but if you look back to the end of the 1960s when skinhead was very popular in, in the UK it was a non-racist variant of skinhead it was about displaying your pride in your community, working class community, about engaging with certain kinds of black music, in fact, and rude boy style. If you look at contemporary skinheads, you find the dominance probably now of racist variants of skinhead, at least within kind of media and public discussion of it. Although among skinheads, people who would call themselves skinheads today, probably the traditional variant of skinhead remains pretty dominant, certainly in the UK and large parts of Europe, but perhaps less so in, in America and, and parts of the East. And why did you focus on Russia in your research? I've been studying contemporary Russia for 15, 20 years, so it wasn't a choice for me, it was part of what, what I did. It was more the other way around, kind of working in Russia, why did skinhead become an issue? And it actually developed out of previous work we were doing on, on something completely different, on drug use uh, and youth culture in Russia. And as part of that ethnographic work, as often the case with ethnographic work, you meet people that you never expected to meet. And amongst a particular set of people in a city in the very far north of Russia, we encountered a group of young people who called themselves skinheads of the racist variant. And over a period of time, we got to know them better and became interested in what it meant for them to be skinheads, what they did, uh, how they engaged with the outside world, how they related to each other and we began to work with them and out of that we developed further research ethnographic research with them over a number of years and then in the book we kind of tried to situate their experience within the wider and wider understandings of skinhead today. The particular location of your research is an interesting place can you tell us a little bit about it? The place we worked with this group of young people is called Vokuta and it's in the very far north of European Russia. So if you can imagine a map with the Ural Mountains kind of splitting eastern and European Russia, then Vokotel is located right at the very northern tip. So it's in the Arctic Circle. It's about 100 kilometres from the Arctic Ocean. And it has a very interesting history. It's one of the original uh, gulag camps established in the late 1920s, early 30s, uh, where prisoners of all kinds, political prisoners, but also uh, common criminals, were sent to serve sentences and were forced into labour, particularly in Vokota. Uh, there's a very a rich coal scene, so the city was developed on the basis of a number of mines. 
And so you, you have a, a, an original kind of convict or uh, forced labour population that was then supplemented over time uh, by relatives coming to stay. And then in the 60s and 70s, and under the Soviet regime, people were encouraged to go there voluntarily to earn kind of the higher wages and early retirement rights that working in the far north of Russia accrued. So you have this kind of gradual development of a, a, a quite large city. At its peak, it was probably about 180,000. Yet it's in the middle of the tundra. The native peoples are reindeer herders. Nothing grows. The winter's uh, nine, ten months long. And from the transformation of the economy, starting around 1991, of course the coal mines themselves became increasingly unprofitable. They were sustained by the Soviet economic planning system. Once that collapsed, you had a kind of very rapid process of deindustrialization and rapid depopulation of the city. So it's a, it's a fascinating uh, kind of extreme example of, of deindustrialization in, in particularly harsh geographic and territorial conditions. Your research has taken place over a long period of time. How long have you been working on this project? And what kind of relationships did you build with the people you studied? We've worked on and off with that group of people since 2002, so eight years. And I say on and off because it's not a a long-term ethnographic, it's not an eight-year ethnographic project, but we've had four visits and three different projects that have allowed us to talk to them for different purposes, effectively. But it's kept up the relationship over all of that time. And in fact, I saw one of them the last time, just back in May, in Petersburg, where he's now serving in the army, So, and gave him a copy of the book, in fact. So we've kept up a kind of constant relationship with those who have remained in Vokuta. A lot of them have already left. And we've also kept up the contact via um, the Russian equivalent of Facebook. So we've known them not only in their skinhead capacity, but as, as people, fully rounded people, for, for quite a long time. And that, I think, makes the book not only about skinheads, and in a sense, the, the title's quite unfortunate. It's one of those things that mar- marketing requires. But it's actually not only about these people as skinhead incarnation. It's about the whole lives of young people and what role skinhead plays in it. And we interviewed two of the young people, again, after the projects had finished, but uh, I went back for another reason to Vokuta in October last year and interviewed them again. And it was really interesting to kind of listen to how they now narrate that part of their life that was skinhead. In one case, it was a complete rejection of all of the things that they'd done. The young man talked about it as being the darkest days of his life and that you know, he, he couldn't believe that he'd, he'd engaged in that kind of activity. The other was more kind of circumspect about it, but uh, had clearly moved on a long way from the views that he held and the kind of activities that he engaged in. So we, we kind of have a relationship, I think, with them that manages to explore not just the surface manifestation of what they do or just allows them to exaggerate or uh, demonstrate, be demonstrative about about the, the activities they're engaged in, but explores their emotional lives, their personal lives, their aspirations in work and in education, as well as the skinhead parts of their, their, their lifestyles. How does the skinhead movement have similar ideologies across different countries? When you say skinhead, ide- the skinhead movement, it, again, I think we have to bear in mind there are lots of different strands of it now. If you think about uh, tr- what we call now tradskins, but a movement that kind of revisits, reworks, relives spirit of, of, of 69, that kind of late 1960s traditional skinhead, British skinhead movement, I wouldn't say that they had an ideology. I don't think it's about ideology. It's about this kind of feeling, this sense of being part of something. 
if you talk about uh, neo-Nazi, as they tend to be referred to in Russia, or racist uh, skinheads, then there is a set of, not so much a shared ideology, but a set of principles or a set of common texts or symbols or ideas that they borrow from. And it varies in each country. In the States you get a kind of strong focus on whiteness, white Aryan resistance and so on. In Russia you tend to get a kind of mixture of borrowing from that kind of global racist skinhead movement and some kind of local influences, especially around Russian nationalism. There's quite a big debate within the Russian skinhead movement about which of those are more prominent. There is some kind of basic tenets that they would share, although there are also kind of different strategies and different local uh, importances. And then, of course, there's a whole kind of other part of the contemporary skinhead movement, which is associated with the anti-fascist movement, with red and anarchist movements. Skin has been taken up extensively in gay circles now. So there's a whole kind of other set of skinhead traditions as well that we, we have to remember, you know, are, are there as well and w- would not share any of the, the racist principles. Why do you think being a skinhead appeals to the young people you have studied? I think at that point in time when the movement was emerged and was was quite developed, talking about the late 1990s, probably peaking in around 2002, there were two kind of subcultural, if you like, movements that were were very developed in, in the city, punks and skinheads. And I think the reason that those movements became very popular was because they afforded quite different but in a way similar in the sense of what could be expressed through them uh, ways of escaping the everyday and as I said they've got the kind of social and economic problems that were associated with the city kind of poor infrastructural development very poor horizons very poor expectations and aspirations for young people a strong kind of cultural tradition of low-level criminality block against block if you like street against street fighting and what subcultural movements often offer young people is a way of putting themselves outside of that and above that, of having some greater, more interesting aspect of their lives that they can follow through, they can find things out about it, they can appeal to things that are of a global, not just a a local nature. They may be associated with music, often the, the people that went into the punk scene were very keen on music, they set up their own bands and so on. Skinheads tended to be people who were perhaps more interested in in the body, in sport, in kind of traditional, if you like, hard masculinities. But nevertheless, Skinhead gave them an opportunity to form a kind of strong solidarity, a strong sense of bonding between uh, other young people who didn't want to be part of the everyday, routine, banal work, drink, fight. And they saw skinhead is giving them a meaning in life and giving their life a meaning that was kind of more transcendent than that, that had some greater purpose other than than that kind of cycle. And finally, what does the skinhead movement tell us about society as a whole? And do you think the movement will endure into the future? I think it will. It's one of those fascinating cases of a subculture that has endured an awful long time. You know, it's already endured more than 40 years. Uh, punk's another one that, that that has retained its its resonance in contrast to hippie movement, which has kind of almost completely disappeared. It's perhaps morphed into other things, but it's it's not there. Mods and so on, glitter. All of these movements kind of tend to come and go. Punks and skinheads have retained their their resonance. Again, it's difficult to talk about skinhead as one thing. So what does it tell us about society? I think there is some kind of appeal 
to young people across both time and space about taking pride in one's local community. I think that original kind of sense of defence of working class community, bonds, values, territory retains its significance around the world. We talk about globalisation, but the global is always experienced directly through the local. And we see it, you know, you, you only need to go into kind of suburbs of Birmingham and you see the same kind of, you know, racist graffiti. Uh, you see the emergence of the, the English Defence League. These kinds of movements keep coming back and it's about a misplaced kind of sense of wanting to defend, uh, defend a community that you feel is, is under threat. So I think, I think that retains its value. Uh, many of the people who remain engaged with the Tradskin movement, talk about the style, the look, the music as retaining relevance. And if you listen to many of the kind of contemporary punk bands share many of the original perhaps scar influences that, that were very prominent in early skinhead music. Uh, they shared at one point the, the kind of oi music tradition. So I think there's, there's quite a lot of musical and stylistic resonance that, that has been retained. There's, again, the taking up of the style by the gay community so long ago also shows that there's something about the skinhead style which, which retains, its, retains its interest. And what it tells us about society, I suppose, is that those local values or those local concerns retain their importance even in kind of hyper-globalised times.